Welcome everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Cashew Podcast channel. My name is Stacy Geringer and I am the Outreach Director at the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare. We're excited to share our latest podcast series with you. The series is titled, It's the Process, Not the Product, Supporting Therapeutic Lifebook Work for Kids, Youth, and Beyond. Hi there. I'm Keely Vandry, and I coordinate CASHU's Permanency and Adoption Competency, or PAC, program, which is a cohort-based training that enhances permanency and adoption competence for professionals working across child welfare and mental health settings statewide. While we discuss lifebooks as a practice tool throughout our curriculum, the research bears out that there is a significant underuse of lifebook and life story work across child welfare and therapeutic spaces, even though it is evidenced to be a highly effective and flexible practice tool for foster and adopted children and youth. And I've heard the same challenge echoed by PAC therapists and child welfare workers who want to engage lifebooks as a tool in their practice, but may struggle with knowing where to start or how to carve out the space for this important work. We hope that this mini podcast series can demystify and streamline life story approaches that can help any practitioner center and support children, youth, and even adults in knowing and telling their stories as an integral part of their permanency and or adoption journey. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel for future episodes. We thank you for listening and take care. Kendra Morris Jacobson is joining me today from Oregon, and Kendra oversees the Oregon Post-Adoption Resource Center and the Oregon Adoption Resource Exchange, and is certified in Therapeutic Life Story Work, or TLSWI. She was a supporting contributor to Dr. Redmond Reams' recently published article in Adoption Quarterly titled, Lifebooks in Child Welfare, Why Isn't a Great Idea Used More Often? So Kendra, would you be willing to share a little bit more with our listeners about your background and what drew you to Lifebook and TLSWI work? Thank you, Keely, and thanks so much for hosting me today. When I reflect on nearly 30 years in the field with all my varied roles, mental health, recruitment, post-supports, advocacy, there's two salient themes, connecting and storytelling. And ultimately, all I am as a professional is a collection of those stories that I'm honored to witness, hear, hold, or celebrate. And that's really the appeal of therapeutic life story work and life story in general. If we share stories with one another and take even brief time to connect, what we share resonates with more authenticity. And for hurting and children that we're working with, that's an acute need, especially if we're trying to support them. And here we are today, Keely, getting to be become part of one another's stories, and in many ways, part of your listeners as well, which is exciting. In terms of therapeutic life story work itself, we discovered um, Richard Rose, uh, probably back in 2014. And I lay out the tale of our introduction in a meandering chapter I wrote for his 2017 book, Innovative Life Story Work. And he really captured our attention. It was really great to be able to learn more about him, and you you introduced me to him. It was great to listen in on one of his webinars. Well, to get more into today's topic, I think it would be helpful context for our listeners to hear a little bit more about the history of life books as a practice tool. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so life books in their simplest and most familiar form are, are a book of photos, descriptions, mementos of both a child's history prior to care, at least in terms of what's known, and then their time in care. You know, somewhat of a modified baby book or scrapbook with child welfare records woven in. And they've been used in some form or another within child welfare for decades. They varied widely from a literal scrapbook to more of a narrative with notes, records, and today some have evolved even to physical containers and now, you know, video or digital forms. But in the United States, it's pretty common knowledge that Beth O'Malley, foster care adoptee and social worker herself, most famously called our collective attention to the relevance of life books in the early 2000s. But it's Joy Reese in the United Kingdom, who in the 90s had started to explore more of the therapeutic structure and purpose of life books as a scaffolding for healing, you know, as in life books being not just a product for the child, but unfolding as an intentional and dynamic process with the child. And regardless of the form, life books are sometimes the only records a child will have of pieces of their childhood, so they can be a priceless tool. That's something interesting I've heard, that even just a few lines um, can be can constitute someone's experience of a life book and having just a little bit of information can still feel very grounding for people who have experienced out of home placement or time in care. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, so then can you tell us more about the purpose of using life books specifically in a child welfare setting? Yeah, so traditionally child welfare has used life books as a way to share the child's records with them and with their future caregivers, since one of the absolutely deleterious, destructive effects of be being in care is children lose so much of that continuity on the foster care or adoption journey. And then of course, a life book moves forward with the child as they leave the system. But over time, you know, as with Joy Reese and her approach, the field started to discern that there was even greater value and potential in involving the child in an age appropriate fashion in creating the book and even the format of the book in order to help them better grasp their identity, their roots, as well as their future. So essentially it was an evolution from just a you know pretty keepsake album to more of this interactive and growth experience. And the reasoning around that and the value of it being more of a personal process really lies in attachment theory and models or interventions like Darla Henry's 357, TBRI, Trust-Based Relational Intervention, or Richard Rose's Therapeutic Life Story Work. And they all focus on giving a child safety so they find their voice, and likewise, helping them find their voice so they feel safe. Delaware-based attachment therapist Jessica Sinarski refers to the concept of safety blindness, where kids in care are perpetually preoccupied with keeping themselves safe, so they don't even have time to truly digest you know, where they are, who they're with, let alone where they've been. And they need all of those pieces to create a cohesive narrative and understanding around it. And so ideally, the process of life books or life story work help a ch child pause just long enough to feel safe even if briefly, and take stock in what's been happening in their life and reclaim their voice. And if folks want an instant crash course in feeling safe, one of my absolute go-tos is The Pocket Guide to Polyvagal Theory by Dr. Stephen Porges. It's amazing. And his work is also delightfully synthesized and summarized by therapists, authors like Dr. Mona, Mona Delahook or Bonnie Badnock. 
Wow, what great resources. Thank you so much for adding those in. I think that the idea of safety is really, it reminds me of some of what Dr. Richard Rose was speaking to in the webinar I was able to join him with last week, that the co-creation or um, the storytelling of the child, youth, and care can sometimes be a moment that that can be triggering. You know, I think it's interesting to think about how we hold space for that and encourage them to share their stories, but also honor the fact that sometimes sharing the story can be really hard. Also, something we see in our classrooms is the interdisciplinary silos that maybe a therapist feels that they can kind of enter into that work, but not necessarily a child welfare practitioner. So is it is it therapeutic necessarily to, to do that and delve into things that can bring up trauma and attachment? And I think you could even argue that any relational moment is therapeutic mm-hmm. for these children. Anytime an adult is interacting with these kids who come into care, or really any child for that matter, in whatever role they are, it's an opportunity. It's a time where we can model how to connect, how to share a story with one another, even if it's just a passing moment, because then that is what helps each of us feel safe. Robin Goebel, um, she's an attachment trauma therapist, and she talks about slowing it down. Not that you're slowing down moments in time physically, but more emotionally, relationally, where where you create a little bit of an intentional space around how to story share with someone else, in particular these children, in order to create that safe space, which is then what allows them to process through some more difficult moments, but yet without feeling too dysregulated. Right. That's, that's helpful. So at the beginning of our conversation, I mentioned the way I actually found you, Kendra, was reading Dr. Redmond Reams' article titled, um, Life Books in Child Welfare, Why Isn't a Great Idea Used More Often? And that really seems to be echoed. It alludes to this notion that I've heard that life books are an underutilized or almost kind of mystical tool. Um, what does the literature say about that? Is there a need for more research on life books and life story work? So the research on life books specifically is pretty sparse. And plus, if you're going to study life books, you have to determine, well, what are the measurable areas of impact you even suspect it to have? And that's where Oregon's psychologist and attachment expert, Dr. Redmond Reams, as you mentioned, who's also an adoptive parent himself, comes in. And Dr. Reams was looking at, you know, what I'd call the woefully understudied area of transitions from foster care to adoption and noting the inconsistencies and barriers around this really impactful time in both a child and a family's life. And we're not just talking one family, but multiple families are impacted. And being the brilliant and astute mind that he is, he suspected that when it came to transitions, factors such as whether a child transitioned with a life book or not, probably had implications far beyond just, you know, the existence of of a lovely gingham book. So he's written multiple articles on his findings from the transition study. But in this case, you know, he was looking at the variable of life books specifically. And what he found was striking. He he sums it up beautifully in his article. So I'd encourage folks to go straight to the source rather than relying on me. But if you really parse and distill it down into a single golden nugget of wisdom, 
His collective transitions research and the life book studies show this. When people around a child connect with one another and come to a common understanding of that child's life story, things unfold better for the child. And I want to repeat that because it's really significant. When people around a child connect with one another and come to a common understanding of that child's life story, things unfold better for the child. And this makes a real strong case for life books and, and other related tools being a pretty urgent area of both study and practice. And anecdotally, without a doubt, there's people listening to this podcast who know how complex transition times are and how there can really be sort of dangerous moments when they can go awry. And the life book or, a, or life story work can really factor in just for a transition. And so then if you extrapolate that, so my goodness, what could that mean long-term? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think about multiple transitions and how many of the children in care experience maybe more than one. And so just even kind of multiplying the impact of having that thread, that story that continues with them, that that could become even more important. Absolutely. And that's not even thinking about involving the child in creating the book. That's just the existence of the book itself. So when you start to think about it in that way, it's really striking and sort of opens up a whole new world of of thinking around it. Now, granted, you know, some critique of light books in their original form goes back to what Joy Reese was unearthing and what therapeutic life story work expert Richard Rose highlights, which is that while life books are valuable and can even be critical lifelines for kids to their past, it's also that perhaps we can do more. Like as, as child welfare or other types of professionals, you know, we can do better than a one-sided process where we adults, you know, just hand a child or, or caregivers a book or, you know, where the sharing in the book is not age appropriate. You know, we can we can use a little more ingenuity to find opportunity to include the child in the scripting of their story, connecting with them more deeply and getting them the information that feels relevant to them rather than making assumptions. And, um, you know, you touched on this a, a little bit from a different direction, Keely. You know, the whole conundrum for kids who come into care is that there's all these different role players. We've got the therapists, the caseworkers, foster parents, CASAs, attorneys, et cetera. And we're all only getting or digesting disjointed pieces of that child's story that fit or serve our specific role. You know, we don't take time to read all the other notes. We're we're just sort of looking for what's relevant to our role. And even if we, we, as the adults, put those pieces together, you know, are they accurate? I I think we, we can all acknowledge freely that child welfare records have errors subjective reports, and and not just child welfare, right? All all the different role players. And are we all really taking into account the assorted experts, you know, birth family members, other important historical witnesses who were there when we all weren't? And then, of course, most importantly, and first and foremost, the child. I have a quote I'd love to share from foster adoptee, Dr. Jaya John. I, I think he just captures it beautifully. All of his books are treasure, but Reflection Pond is my confessed favorite. And he writes, how many times has a child tried to express something to us, her story? How many times has our reaction had the effect of saying to her, 
go rewrite the script. What she has to express can have no editors, only listeners and interpreters. And I think that's really capturing it. You know, if the adults around a child don't even have a common understanding of a child's story, and this goes back to Dr. Williams' story, study, how on earth can kids construct their own cohesive narrative and feel rooted in an identity that gives them purpose? Which takes us back to that whole circular idea of connection and safety. I can't feel connected and safe to others in the world around me if I don't know who, where, and what I am, but I can't know who, where, and what I am if I don't feel connected and safe enough to accomplish that. Yeah, I think um, that's reminding me of something that comes up in our classrooms quite a bit about the truth and that we need to be able to um, share the the true story of what has happened in a child's life, that there is really no age at which the truth is not something that children should know or be have access to, um, but that we also find ways, I think, like what you're talking about as adults, to sometimes question the truth that children are telling us. And I think this work could also help us enter a more reciprocal, creative space with, with the kids that we're working with. I'm just thinking about that as you were mentioning, kind of that safety and that um, that sharing of, of, you know, listening to them and really honoring their story. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering, yeah, how, how often do we get hung up on the truth? What does that even mean, really, when you're thinking about a child's experience who might have been through a lot of different placements with so many different carers and adults in their life? Exactly. I mean, I think you've hit it right on the head that a child's truth is their truth in that moment in time. And that truth may even change, right? And in addition, you know, even as adults, like my description of this podcast to someone else will will absolutely vary, at least to some extent, from your description or another person who's listening. Because in this moment, it's our story and our truth. And we're all just each made of these different stories that form a composite and a child needs space to move from one truth to another to another as part of understanding their story which is really child development as well. Kendra would you be willing to speak to a question about like if a story really changes drastically um, like between six-month periods, or if a story is really, really sad or hard. I, I took that away from the webinar I, I listened to that Dr. Rose seemed to say, that's what we put. We put the hard story. We put the, the difficult stuff. Well, it would probably depend on the context. So for instance, when he's doing the life story work, it really is guided by the child and what they're seeking to understand. Like, so Maybe an example, which of course isn't isn't going to necessarily be perfect, is like we as the professionals, or maybe me as the therapist, might feel like oh, the abuse that that child suffered in this particular environment, you know, from this neighbor, is really the driving force between all of the challenges and the behavioral issues and the emotional turmoil this child is experiencing. But if we step back and we actually build relationship and look for the cues, what we might learn is what's really driving this child is preoccupation with wondering if their birth mother is safe in prison. Or 
is their little brother okay in his adoptive placement because those adoptive parents didn't stay in contact like they said they would. And, and this child is really, 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 really worried about that. And we might find that's really more where the resolution needs to occur rather than this, you know, what we, what we feel is this horrendous experience that this child went through and lived through and is still here today and, and surviving. So it, it's really around context. And are we talking about, you know, an all about me book, a life story book, or are we actually doing a process where the child is taking space with a safe person in a safe environment, you know, to delve into that. In therapeutic life story work, you might be tracing lightly or deeply on a child's past, depending. And of course, we know developmentally over time, what we need to know or want to know changes, you know, what that child needs to know or wants to know at age 13 is probably going to be pretty different down the road. So we don't want to leave things out, but we also don't want to over-include and overshadow the child's truth with what we think is the truth. And what Richard often reminds us is, write down or document the stories of everyone so that the child can then determine what is their truth. Dad said this, grandma said this, the social worker said that, the nurse said this, hmm. And then we let the child come to their own conclusion. Age appropriate, of course, development. So Kendra, how does your training in therapeutic life story work really support the framework that we're talking about here today. Um, we've used a couple of different terms, life books, life story work, but can you talk a little bit more specifically about the therapeutic life story work model? I can definitely attempt. <laughs> All of these tools definitely blur together and blend to, to some extent, which is also part of the universality of them. Um, so we know that humans thrive on story and on play in all forms, right? I mean, just look at Dan Siegel, Bruce Perry, Dr. Stuart Brown, I mean, even Shakespeare. And so many types of narrative or bibliotherapies, art therapy, play therapies, even Lego therapy, they're all absolutely worthwhile. Therapeutic life story work, or, or the Rose model, as it's starting to be called, is a specific honed approach, you know, pioneered by by him um, as an international trainer, social worker, and adoptee in the UK. And it helps the child first and foremost go into a safe space by firmly document, documenting the present and then moving backwards to trace lightly or deeply through their generational past. You know, not just through their past, through their generational past, but lingering only on the pieces that are most meaningful and top of mind for them, and then extrapolating about how that translates to a healthier future. Now, with his quaint British accent and melodic prosody, Richard Rose can describe it far more eloquently than I, as he does in his books and his, and his trainings. Um, but it, it essentially, the approach blends elements of attachment theories and play and art therapies with trauma-sensitive person centered interventions that create room for a child to wonder about the stories that make up their story and then come to their own conclusion. As you're saying, Keely, instead of us just handing them our interpretation or what we think they should be thinking about their own story. 
And and therapeutic life story work proper takes place over a nine-month process where the child and a helper adult literally illustrate their story, whether words, drawing, pictures, whatnot, and the collecting of the stories of those around them on a wallpaper-like tapestry. But that can then also be condensed into a life book of sorts. And there's other creative ways to adapt the approach so it's less cumbersome. But but it, it, you essentially get the the best of both worlds, right? You get the the process and then you also get the product at the same time. Kendra, one of the things you were just talking about is that, you know, this could be a really long and, and involved and artistic process that sounds really amazing. Um, but there are ways that this process can also be simplified and potentially um shortened that that work more in the the caseload frameworks that a lot of our practitioners have to that's their reality Um, in minnesota we don't actually have a formal policy or practice regarding life books for children in care they are required under certain agency contracts and they're often mentioned as a great resource to use but that's not as formal or as consistent as what it sounds like the state of Oregon is doing. Um, on the website, I noticed that there's the phrasing that ODHS Child Welfare has taken the bold and exciting step of adding all about me books into procedure for all children experiencing care. Could you talk a little bit about how Oregon has implemented this process into the child welfare system? That sounds incredibly hard and, and huge. <laughs> Yes, and very aspirational, right? Which is how um, I think some of the most important movements in child welfare get started. You know, it has to start as aspirational. We have to set lofty goals and standards that we, you know, we try to reach. And of course, you know, some of that will be fulfilled and some of that won't. So, you know, Oregon is working really hard. And like, you know, other states, counties, districts, they have the usual barriers of funding and time. And so they realized that, you know, trying to roll out some sort of a nine-month piece of work was was simply not feasible. So the first step was, well, how can we just share and train on the concepts? Concepts that any adult spending time with a child, all of the ones we've been talking about, therapists, caseworkers, parents, attorneys, even educators, could implement. And, the you know, the principles that we've been talking about that sort of hold up that approach are, you know, reiterating that the child's perception of their story and themselves matters most. And then two, that there are countless but intentional expressive tools and games that can be used to build genuine relationship with kids. And then three, if we remain curious and observant, the kids give us the clues and teach us how to better understand and support them. And Richard Rose's books list countless ideas of those games and tools, many of which the children that he works with um, thought of themselves. So once Oregon was familiar with the concepts and some of those tools, which is an ongoing process, right? Like we're constantly reinforcing and reiterating, momentum built around, well, what could we do? And that's where the All About Me books came in. And we're fortunate enough in Oregon and so grateful to have supportive director level child welfare leadership, along with very effective and enthusiastic key state advocates. So I really want to call a shout out to Francine Florendo and Ali Fasholtz. And then in Oregon, we also have the advantage of being centralized. Like we don't operate as different counties. We operate as a state. And so there was really a lot of celebration around, okay, how can we really support kids in a simple way that's not costly that most of us can do? 
And so the All About Me books are really just a simple PowerPoint booklet with a theme chosen or personalized by the child. And they're designed with prompts to help a child establish all that we've been talking about, you know, where they are, who the people are around them, where they've been, and perhaps most importantly, like who they are today, as in literally what are their favorite foods, activities, friends, school, challenges, culture, as well as, you know, dipping their toe into any unanswered questions they might have or, or wonderings. And they are the child's expression, like listening to Dr. Jaya John, you know, they're not our edited note taking. So the child really owns the book. And any child, I mean, any adult can not only help the child do a book, but adults can do the books too. So it goes back to that original concept of the mutual relationship building and story sharing, which is what helps kids feel safe. And Oregon has books for families, parents, and even workers, so that when a permanency worker goes out to visit with a child or meet with a child for the first time, they can show them their book, which immediately is starting to story share in a safe way with the child. And so it's starting to build that relationship. Yeah, that really struck me um, in Dr. Rose's training when he talked about that strategy of having the worker work on one at the same time as the child or or share one because I think that so much of the work that we do is clarifying our role and so many of our the kids that we see have seen so many different grown-ups in their lives and it's it's really confusing so I think that is a a way to establish trust and and relationship but like you're saying that everybody has a story you know we're all starting um from some some story together too when we come come together so i think that could be really powerful really at any at any stage regardless of role so i think that we could talk a little bit more about how you see specifically the impact of the all about me pages with children in adoption and foster care um Maybe a little bit about how easy it is. How long does this typically take? Uh, is it a session? Is it something that goes goes on? And I, and I mean the specific page itself every six months. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the beauty of the All About Me books is there's lots of flexibility. You know, th- there's there's no mandates or specific rules around how they're implemented. Some kids might want to churn out a whole book in one setting during a during a visit with a worker or sitting down at the table with a resource or foster parent, whereas another child might need more relationship building and they might only be able to get to a few pages at a time. And because they're a PowerPoint template, there's lots of flexibility around that. And pages can be taken in, taken out, substituted, or new ones created if there aren't even enough to cater to what a child is interested in doing. The idea of doing them every six months is, again, quite aspirational and will probably take Oregon a a long while to get to. But if they are done every six months or even close to it, you actually start to get a life book that's created, but by the child. And it encompasses all of those little details about their life that are really hard for the adults around them to capture when they're moving between placements and going in and out of care. So if you were to put all those together, like say a child were in care for four years, I mean, you would have literally hundreds of pages 
to help them document in their own writing or in their own pictures, you know, who they were at that time, which is also more reinforcing for them in terms of their own identity, because it's not someone else saying, oh, Sally was like this, or this was how Jimmy behaved at school. It's like, these are my own memories. And unlike other children who are with a single caregiver who can remind them about all of those little things, you know, these children almost need themselves to have a firmer grasp on where they were and what they were doing, since they don't have that consistency around them to be helping create that narrative. I have a question with the notion of doing that fairly regularly. How important is it to have a handwritten aspect? I know that Dr. Rose said that that's his preferred way is to, is to there's something about the, the written experience, um, but like, how are they stored? And if they are done on the computer, how does the child have them? And then what do you do when kiddos would like to have photos or pictures um, and maybe they can't have, have the book look the way they want? That's kind of a specific question. Well, since they're digital versions and they can be hand printed out, or not hand printed out, but computer printed out and then worked on, you, you can essentially blend the two. You can have a child work on a physical version, whether they're drawing or writing or whatever they're adding. And then you also still have the digital file so that you can actually add photos or copies of whatever you like. And then you can even scan the pages or scan the pictures and put them together. Because of course, some kids, maybe particularly teenagers, would rather do it all online where they can you know, grab more things off the inter- internet and play. So the idea is if you have both the physical book, but because it is a PowerPoint, it is also a digital computer copy, you're kind of able to capture both sides and that it can be easily stored. Kendra, I'm wondering how these tools and frameworks can honor the many kinds of identity intersections of children in care across abilities, race, culture, sexuality, and gender expression, to name only a few. How, how do the All About Me pages and life story work make space for all those kinds of identities? The books themselves are designed so that kids can not only choose their own template, but as we're saying, you know, modify them. And the pre-existing templates not only include a wide variety of inclusive graphics for each of the themes, but then there's pages of extra graphics if the kids or, or adults don't have time to search for more that they can actually go and swap in and out. There are existing pages that ask about culture and race and assorted needs so as to create space for the child to, you know, to ponder or describe or ask questions about their culture, race, and identity. And then the booklets are already translated bilingually into a variety of different languages so that even if a child doesn't necessarily speak a language, they can still connect with that culture or make their book accessible to a relative or someone else who does speak that language. The parent pages are listed neutrally so that the child has the freedom to select whomever they want to list as a parent. You know, they're not limited by gender or they're not identified with a foster, you know, biological, adoptive, or guardianship identity. So there's, they're really meant to be open-ended to fulfill whatever the child needs them to fulfill. 
That's that's really great. I like thinking especially about the diverse uh, translation or, or language options. I think that's, you know, really exciting to think about honoring the family culture and background that children may be wanting to link with in telling their story and, and who they might want to share this with at different stages. Talking now a little bit more, you've you've been open and this is something we all know that aspiration might look different than practice. We know that can be hard to even interpret policy and move it into our practice. So how has that looked so far in terms of rolling out the All About Me practice? Do do you know how successful that's been? And is there evaluation about outcomes for kids with that new process? Well, it's pretty early in Oregon. You know, this really has just happened within the last year. And, you know, is the workforce challenged um, to, to roll it out? Well, you bet. I mean, haven't met a state yet where there isn't a child welfare workforce who's feeling pretty challenged. Um, but I think we've found that the workers who have been able to dive in are finding it so rewarding, even just for them. Like, even if you keep the kids out of it just for them, which, of course, is great for burnout, right, and retention and for relationship building with kids, which, of course, then translates into better outcomes for kids, ultimately. But anecdotally, we're also hearing stories of how the books are changing lives for kids. Again, anecdotally, of course, not evaluatively. Workers are using them. I mean, workers got really creative themselves, and they're using them as reunification tools, you know, tools to do with a biological parent, birth parent, original parent. There's different terms people use to, to describe that relationship and for the children um, as they're transitioning home or just transition tools when they're moving between placements or the foster or resource families, as they're called here in Oregon, can use them as introduction tools. Like, here's our family book. You're new to our home. Let, let's look at our books together. Or the workers are finding that they're just learning about the children in ways they never would have by virtue of doing the book. In fact, the little girl who I really was essentially the first book, the first child's book done in Oregon, and her book was an absolute goldmine of clues about her emotional state, about the topics she was most concerned about, one of which involved her, her biological mother and her culture and her race. And then there were all sorts of other fun facts woven in that the team around her would never have known. And she ended up getting opportunities and attention around some significant issues that really needed to be tended to, as well as some fun stuff. Like she got to go to a concert because everyone learned that she loved country music and that one of her dreams was, you know, to go to a country music concert. And if it hadn't been for the book, you know, she and the worker would never never have gotten there in, in just a conversation. It actually took book making magic in order to open the door it it seems like what you the quote i can't remember the exact language but that the story was unfolding better for that that child right there was more room there was more information about who she was and what she maybe couldn't just share during and you know get to know you conversation with the, the next worker that she was meeting with. So that, exactly. that's what it makes me think of. Well, let, let's let Dr. Jai John say it again. He, he has this gorgeous relational sounding quote. 
Her own storytelling empowers and heals her as immediately as a loving embrace. And she and her worker, she and this worker, ended up super close also because of that experience. And they built a stronger relationship, which of course also then adds another drop in the bucket of that child's healing. That is beautiful imagery for the listeners to think about. Would you be able to share any favorite life book resources with us before we end today's conversation? <laughs> oh, gosh, how to hold me back on this one. Um, well, first first of all, you know, as, as I know, Keely, you've already discovered on Or Parks, All About Me and Life Story Pages, we've got essentially all of our favorites on there, including, you know, scientific articles and studies, links to Beth O'Malley, Joy Reese. Of course, links to Richard Rose's Therapeutic Life Story Work site itself and his books, along with some beautiful video projects that are being done by Blue Cabin in the UK. Um, Both in the UK and Australia, they've been doing a lot of work rolling out therapeutic life story work in a variety of different ways. But, you know, ultimately, you know, personally, Richard Rose himself, I know it sounds silly, but he, he is just an incredible resource. If anyone ever has a time, you know, to hear him, to watch him, there are some videos um, out there. He he almost brings therapeutic life story work to life by virtue of how he shares and trains. You know, he he's really sort of the epitome, the, the epitomal expression of sharing stories and sharing lives, which is something that he often says. I did want to make sure that I'm correct that Dr. Rose is also an adult adoptee. Um, PAC really strives to center the voices of those with lived experience, and almost all of our curriculum is co-created by adoptees. And so I think that's really powerful in terms of understanding life story work for this population. And it seems like that's something Dr. Rose has lived experience with, too. Absolutely. Yeah, he is an adoptee, and he actually started um, working in social work at the age of 17. So he has spent a long time in the field, um, both with lived personal experience as well as the professional experience. And does he have stories to tell? (laughs) Well, Kendra, it has been such a delight to talk with you over the last several weeks, but especially today. I've learned something from the stories we've shared together and all of the resources that you have, have shared with us. So thank you so much. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Well, thank you so much, Keely. It's been exciting also to be learning about what Minnesota is doing. And frankly, it's really energizing to know that there's other states out there with as much, and an individual such as yourself, with as much passion and interest around this topic. I mean, it's, it's really one for all of us. This podcast is supported by the Minnesota Department of Human Services and the United States Department of Health and Human Services.